the book of Galatians. If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is writing this book of Galatians to the, to the churches in the region of Galatia. And we have looked at chapter 1 over the last couple of weeks, and we've seen some very interesting things. He's made some points that he really wants to stick with us. The first one that he made is that he's an apostle. He's an apostle. You see, part of the criticism going against Paul was that he wasn't a real apostle. He wasn't one of the original apostles that were with Christ, because Paul at that time was a persecutor of the church. After Christ died and rose again, Paul became a persecutor, uh, standing by while Stephen was put to death, doing anything and everything to take these believers, these Christians, and put them in jail. So he, wasn't a, so he has this stigma against him that he's not a real apostle. But Paul wants us to know, I am an apostle. I am an apostle, but, he all, but he's clear. I'm not an apostle from men. I didn't get my apostleship from the guys in Jerusalem. I got my apostleship from God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus, Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he became a believer. From there, he spent the next couple of years in the desert, spending time with Christ alone. Next three years, we read last week. So he wants us to know that he's an apostle. But he also says something interesting. He says to the churches in Galatia, you're turning away from the gospel that I taught you. Remember, remember Galatia was one of the areas that Paul visited during his first missionary, missionary journey with Barnabas. And he went to places like Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And he went there and he shared the gospel, the good news. Do we remember what the gospel is? Let's have a test. What's the gospel? It was in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's very, three points, very, very simple. Jesus Christ died for my sins. He was buried and he rose again. That's the gospel that he was preaching. Very, very simple. Not a lot of doctrinal stuff there, just very, very simple stuff. So Paul takes this gospel, he starts spreading it around the region. As he spreads it around the region, people are receiving it, they're getting saved, they're living for the Lord. But there soon follows a little bit of conflict. There's these men from Jerusalem, these men from other areas, they're known as Judaizers, they come in and they want to, well you see they have a problem with the Apostle Paul. They don't have a problem with Jesus. They don't have a problem with the crucifixion. They don't have a problem with the resurrection because these were Jewish believers. These were what you would call Jewish Christians. But they have a problem with the Apostle Paul. You see, they believe that Paul, the, the gospel of the Apostle Paul was spreading. Jesus died for my sins, was buried and rose again, wasn't quite complete. And they believe that the Apostle Paul wasn't a real apostle. And they came in and that they began to sort of, sort of re-evangelize this area properly, so to speak. And they wanted them to become, and you can read it in the book of Acts, we wanted them to become Jewish, essentially. They told them, specifically, you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. For a grown man, that's a problem. Paul says, no, 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 no. Salvation is through grace alone. Salvation is through grace alone. But there seems to be this problem as these men come behind the Apostle Paul. They're trying to undo the work that he's done. And what they're doing is they're laying the burden of the Jewish law on them. Now, here's why I understand it. Because these Jewish men, they've lived their entire life underneath Jewish law. There's 613 of them, by the way. You can go on the internet and Google them, and they'll pull up a list for you if you want to see what they are. 613 laws they have to follow. You can, they have, they've spent their entire life trying to fulfill and keep each and every one of these laws. The problem is it's impossible. Now, all of a sudden, within the last few years, Christ comes on the scene. 
Christ fulfills the law. He's crucified. He's risen. Now, all of a sudden, this gospel is going out to the Gentiles. You know what a Gentile is? At that point in time, you were either Jewish or you were Gentile. There was two classifications. To a Jew, you were either one of us or you were one of them. It was Jewish or Gentile. So now the gospel is going out to these Gentiles, and these Jewish men, they have a problem. How come we have, we've spent our entire life keeping the law, keeping the feast, doing all this, the Jewish cultural things that we were told to do by God, now all of a sudden these guys are getting saved and they don't have to do anything. So they're trying to place the requirements on them. And they tell them, unless you become circumcised, like Moses, from the law of Moses, you can't be saved. So they were taking the law or the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were adding the gospel of Moses to it. They were adding something to it. Please be very, very careful. Don't let anybody add anything to your saving grace. Okay, nothing. You don't have to come to church to be saved. You don't have to live a sin-free life to be saved. Don't let anybody tell you you have to do, you don't have to read your Bible to be saved. It's a simple belief on Jesus Christ and that alone has nothing to do with your works. There's no, you know, Paul is emphatically, he's writing this book of Galatians to these people in Galatia to explain to them, it's not how you, it's not how you live your life, it's what you believe. Salvation comes through grace alone in the belief on Jesus Christ, not in your works. By telling people they have to be Jewish, by telling people they have to get circumcised, you're adding something to their salvation and you're placing them right back underneath the same law they were free from. You see, even the Jewish believers now are free from the law. They no longer have to keep the law. Paul would tell us later that the whole purpose of the law was to show us we couldn't keep it. Just to, to show you, that's what rules are. How many of you guys keep the speed limit? Not a hand, one. You don't even drive. You're not old enough to drive. How, what's the purpose of the law? It shows us, well, you, do you know when you break the law? Sure we do. We're in a hurry. We have all kinds of ex- I, Hey, ask John or I. You should hear the excuses people give for speeding. It's crazy. But the law tells us, hey, this te- it, it sets the standard. When you don't meet this standard or you supersede or you break this standard, you're in violation. That's the purpose of the law. So Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians. He's writing them and he's, he's going to sort of, uh, he's going to prove to them I'm going to prove to you guys that the gospel that I'm speaking, the gospel that I've taught you, number one, is the same gospel that the apostles in Jerusalem are sharing. It's the same gospel. These guys that are coming behind us, they're not connected to the apostles in Jerusalem. Paul's going to show us that I am connected to the apostles in Jerusalem, and I'm sharing the exact same gospel. He started that at the end of chapter 1 in verse uh, 18. It says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I remained with him for 15 days. I saw, he also saw James. And now it says in verse 20, Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I don't lie. Afterward, I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia. I was unknown, to the fa- unknown by face to the churches in Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. So Paul is reminding the church in Galatia. He starts out with this. He goes, hey, listen, I'm going to show you that I'm connected to the apostles in Jerusalem. I'm going to show you they accept me. I'm going to show you they accept the gospel that I'm teaching. I'm going to prove it to you. And as he begins this argument, he said, hey, listen, after I was saved, after I was saved, three years, I went up to Jerusalem, and I met with Peter for 15 days, and I met with James, and, I, and they heard about me. 
They heard how I was persecuting the church, how I was trying to destroy Christianity. I was trying to, to lock them up, and I stood by as they, as, as they were martyred and killed for their faith. But you know what they did? After they heard about me, look at verse 24. They glorified God in me. I told James and I told Peter my testimony, and it caused them to glorify God in me. I told them what I was doing, they glorified God in me. So I have their, I have their blessing, if you will. Now, we're going to fast forward to our scripture this morning. Eleven years later, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and I communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But privately, to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So Paul says here 14 years later, take away the initial three, gives you 11 years. That's where the 11 years comes from. 14 years later, I'm headed back up to Jerusalem. I'm going to. Now notice he's taking a few people with him. He says, I'm taking Barnabas with me and I also took Titus with me. Barnabas was a Jewish believer from Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, when Paul began his ministry, the, the church in Jerusalem, the leaders in Jerusalem heard about what was Paul doing, what Paul was doing in the region of Antioch and back in that, in, in, that, in that region. And they heard about people and Gentiles getting saved. And they sent Barnabas, hey, Barnabas, go check it out. Go see what's going on down there. And Barnabas goes down, checks it out and realizes it's the apostle Paul. It's Paul. Paul's the one that's, that's sharing the gospel with these people. Paul, Barnabas finds Paul, brings him back to, their, to his, Paul's home area of Antioch. That's why I say home area, it's his home base. He was from Tarsus, but his, his home base was there in Antioch. Brings him back there, and that's where Paul and Barnabas are sent out from on their first missionary journey. So here, Paul, 14 years later, or, or 11 years later, 14 years after his salvation, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I also took with me Titus. Titus was a Gentile believer. Titus was not Jewish. He was, not, he was from a Gentile background. So Paul is heading to Jerusalem with two friends. Two dear friends, Barnabas and Titus. Now, you guys would have liked Barnabas. The name Barnabas means son of encouragement. That's literally what it means. So Barnabas is, is always spoken of well by the Apostle Paul. And don't you love to be around somebody who's always encouraging you? That's where he got his name from. Barnabas, is an, he's an encourager. He loves to tell people you can do it. He loves to tell you you're going to be okay. Trust the Lord. Keep going. That's the kind of person he was. That's why his name was Barnabas, son of encouragement. And Titus was this Gentile believer, and he's going to be important and a little bit farther on in our story. But notice this, verse two, chapter, first part of verse 2. I went up by revelation. Paul is a spirit-led man. He didn't decide on his own, I have to, get this, I have to straighten this problem out. I'm going to go handle this problem. It says, I went up by revelation. Now, we're not told how that revelation came about. We can search the book of Acts and find out sometimes it's through prayer, sometimes it's through the guidance of the church, sometimes it's, it could be a still small word to him. It could be any number of ways. We're not, we're not given that information here. But Paul goes up there by revelation. I think that's the way we pursue the radio station. I think when God told me back in 2006 that I would do something in radio, that was a revelation. I didn't know what it would look like. I didn't seek it out. I didn't even try to make it happen. It just started falling into my lap at exactly the right time. That's kind of what happens with the Lord. He'll put something on your heart. Don't do it in your own strength because you'll wear yourself out. But just let him do it. 
at the right time. Think about that. That's from 2006 to 2013. That's seven years. Are you willing to wait for the Lord to do something for seven years? I'm glad I did. But sometimes it takes some time. Why do you think it took seven years? Because I wasn't ready. Probably. I wasn't ready. There wasn't the right timing. There's work in my life that had to be done. You know, there's work in others that are involved in it, lives that had to be done. But God's timing is perfect. Paul travels up there by revelation. And he wants them to know, listen, I went there the first time. Now I'm going to Jerusalem the second time. And by the way, I'm taking Barnabas, the good Jewish boy from Jerusalem. I'm taking Titus, the Gentile. The three of us are going up. When he gets there, look what he does. In chapter 2, verse 1, he went up by revelation and he communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did it privately to those who were of reputation. Paul says, I went to Jerusalem and I told them privately. I like that too. Paul said, there might be a problem here. I realize there's, this is a hot topic issue. I realize that I don't know, what they, I don't know where they stand on this. So rather than make a big deal publicly, rather than harm or damage the word of God, rather than, than, than separate the church, or rather than split the church, or rather than create this problem, I'm going to address it privately, Paul says. There's wisdom in that. If you're going to address a problem, do it privately with somebody. If somebody's wronged you in some way, go to them privately. You know, Paul says, I'm going to them privately. And I'm going to share with them. I don't, want to, I don't know where they, where they are. I don't know where their heart is on this. So he goes to them privately, and we read that the people that he goes to well, they're men, of, they're men of reputation. They're men of reputation. I don't want to ruin their reputation. But that means they're important. That means they're leaders in the church. We can, we can kind of guess it's Peter and James and John, but we don't know that for sure. We know they'll be mentioned later, but these are, these are important leaders in the church, and I don't want to confront them. I don't want to confront them publicly. I want to stand unified with them if possible. I want to hear their heart before I stand against them. And that's what he does. He goes to them privately, and he simply says to them, Hey, guys, this is the gospel I'm preaching. This is what I'm teaching. Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. The Gentiles are believing it. The Holy Spirit's falling on them. People are getting saved. God, and he's simply sharing what God's doing. And then he would come to verses 3, 4, and 5. If you've read ahead, you know that 3, 4, and 5 are a little confusing. I'm not a Greek scholar by any by any stretch of the imagination. I have a Bible program that helps me with Greek words, but I can read what the Greek scholars write. And they all agree that 3, 4, and 5 are a mixed-up sort of jumble. Even in the English language, with the way they're translated, they're kind of a mixed-up sort of jumbled mess on what Paul's getting across. But what they agree on is these, ver- these verses, Paul is speaking very emphatically. He's speaking to make a point, and he's almost as if he's using just kind of Kind of, it's almost like he's just, I ain't going to do that. Or just his, his, the, the way that it's written, he's just using everyday modern language. It's not proper Greek language like he would normally write in. Now let's read them together, and then we'll kind of put them in order for you. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we, get, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. A little confusing, right? It kind of, it's kind of mixed up a little bit. We heard about Titus, and he didn't give in, and there was some people, were, false teachers were brought in. Well, what's going on there? What's going on there, Rob? Well, let me put it to you this way. We read in verse 4, because false brethren secretly brought in, 
They came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. As part of this meeting, as part of this group with the leaders, there was false brethren. Now, false brethren don't really know they're false. They don't usually go around with a sign or a hat that says, false brother, be careful of me. But they come with a different gospel. And they came with the heart, the apostle Paul tells us. I want to bring them into bondage. I want to put them back under the yoke of Judaism. I want to put them back underneath the law. And then Paul makes a point. He says, well, even Titus, who was a Gentile and would have been uncircumcised, was not compelled to get circumcised by what they were telling him. He says, we didn't even yield submission, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul says, we didn't even submit at all. We didn't give in to their their argument. We didn't give in to their ploy. So here's what Paul wants us to know in the the big picture of this. Paul says, listen, on my second trip to Galatians, you you guys in the region of Galatia can trust the gospel I'm teaching. Because on the second trip to Galatia, three of us went up. Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. When we got there, we met with the leaders. And they even had some spies in there. They even had some secret guys that were trying to sway us and to bring us back and to change what we believed. But we didn't give in. Not for one bit. Not for one hour did we give in. Even Titus, who's not Jewish, met with those leaders. And he didn't even, he wasn't even, it says, compelled to give in. Titus wasn't even compelled. Titus didn't didn't even feel like, uh, you know what it's like when everybody's doing it? And you feel like you have to do it too, whatever it is. Can you remember? It's like every, the, everybody's doing this one thing, so we have to do it too. Everybody, you know, every church does vacation Bible school, so we need to start vacation Bible school. No, I don't think we do anything because everybody else is doing it. And what Titus is realizing and, and what Paul is pointing out to them is Titus says, I'm not compelled to do that. I don't need, my salvation doesn't depend upon my circumcision. Whew. My salvation doesn't depend on the law that I have to follow. I, there's a, here's what happens. Even today, we can attach rules to salvation. Churches do that. It's possible. I remember, I, I read a story. Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith out in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, it was in the late 60s. Um, him and his wife, Kay, had been going down to the beach ministering to the hippies. And as they would go share the gospel with the hippies down there, the surfers, they started getting saved. As they started getting saved, they started coming to church. Well, these guys and girls were coming to church, but they were coming in beachwear. They were coming in shorts and t-shirts, and they weren't wearing shoes because they didn't wear shoes on the beach. And as they walked into the church, they would, they, the, the elders got together at one point. They said, listen, we have, to, we have to make an announcement. You have to get these people to put on shoes. And Chuck said, Why? He said, well, because they're coming in with dirty feet and they're getting the carpet dirty and they have surf wax on their feet from their surfboards and it's getting stuck on the carpet and it's, it's causing a problem. You know what Chuck said? Let's tear out the carpet. They don't care about sitting on concrete floors. They don't care about walking on concrete floors. Why are we going to tell them they have to conform to who we are? If they want to come hear the word of God taught, why do we have to attach this burden to them that says, you want to come hear the word of God? Well, fine, dress properly. No more shorts, no t-shirts, put on, put on a suit and a tie and dress shoes, and then you can come hear the word of God. Do you think they would have still come? They didn't even own a suit. They didn't want to have to get dressed up. But that's what, and that's just one, and I'm not saying it's wrong to get dressed up for church, please understand. But what I, what I am saying it's wrong, it's when we begin to attach something to somebody's salvation. If you want to come to church here, 
then you have to dress a certain way. If you want to come to church here, you have to look a certain way. You have to be of a certain socioeconomic status. That's the worst thing that we could ever do as, a body of, as the body of Christ, is include certain people and exclude certain people because they don't fit some mold that we've made up in our own mind. I'm going to tell you one more story about that. I was at a church in, in, uh, in Florida, and uh, there, was a, there was a young lady who, who came to Christ, and uh, let's say her, her background was, uh, uh, she was a dancer, we'll just say that, okay? So her, naturally, her wardrobe was, was a little provocative, I guess I could say, and uh, a couple of the guys came to some of the leadership in the church, and they said, hey, you guys need to tell her, they came to the pastor at the church, and they said, you need to tell her that she can't dress that way and, and come to church. Now, it wasn't completely inappropriate, but it was a little bit, little bit provocative. And the pastor said, why don't you just quit looking at her? And he said this to them. He said, listen, if I start telling her how she has to dress to come to church, she's going to stop coming to church. He goes, why don't we do this? Why don't we all commit to praying for her? And why don't we watch what the Lord does in her life? And over the time period, you know what happened? The skirts got longer. Things got less revealing. And God changed it. And she realized that that wasn't appropriate dress for church. And she changed the way she dressed. But it wasn't the church putting a burden on her, saying, you have to dress a certain way. It was the Lord touching her heart saying, hey, you shouldn't dress that way. So she responds to the Lord rather than the church. That's who we need to be, people who respond to the Lord rather than what society, including the church, puts on us as far as burdens. Now, please don't come in dressed provocatively next week. I hope you get the point. That's just what people can do to add to this gospel. You want to get saved? Well, fine, come to my church. Uh, you have to give a certain amount. You have to dress a certain way. You have to look a certain No, 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 no. Let's not ever do that. Let's just say, you want to come hear the word of God? You're welcome. Come on in. If there's no seats available, sit on the floor. That's okay. No problem. So that's it. Here, back, to, back to Galatians. Paul's basically saying this. On my second trip to Jerusalem, I'm going to show you that they agree with me. Okay, I'm going to show you three ways that they agree with me. The apostles and the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, they agree with me. And I'm going to give you three ways. The first way is Titus was with me, and he was not compelled to be circumcised. So people are coming to tell you in Galatia that you need to be circumcised, but I took Titus to Jerusalem, and he was with Peter, he was with James, and he did not, he was not compelled to be circumcised, even though they tried, even though that they sent in some false brethren to sort of spy out our liberty. Titus didn't. The first way that I know that they accepted me is Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Now, uh, look at verse, uh, verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. That's another tongue twister in there, Paul. Those who seem to be something were nothing. Listen, this is what he's saying. When I met with these people of reputation, these important people, when I met with these leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they didn't add anything to me. Now what he's basically saying is, I, they didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. I already have the gospel. I already know the gospel. They didn't tell me, hey, you have to do this or you have to do that. When I met with them, they simply took what I said because we read that he shared the gospel, what, the gospel that he was teaching with them, and they didn't add anything. They said, this is it. That's fine. They didn't, they, there was nothing. I didn't add anything. They didn't add anything to me. But he says, on the contrary, look at verse 7, when they saw 
that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had, that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul's saying this, when we went up the second time, I'm going to prove to you they, they accepted us. Number one, Titus, a Gentile who was with me, he was not compelled to be circumcised. Number two, they didn't add anything to me. They didn't, they didn't tell me I was doing anything wrong. Number three, on the contrary, we added to them. When they heard what God was doing through our ministry to the Gentiles, they extended to us the right hand of fellowship. So Paul is on this, he's sort of setting the stage for this argument that he's laying out to the church in Galatia. Because they were doubting, who's the apostle Paul? He really, he's not a real apostle. He doesn't really have the backing of the church in Jerusalem. He's just a guy who's kind of a rogue apostle. And Paul says, no, I'm not. I went to Jerusalem once, and they, I told them what they did in my life, and they praised God in me. He goes, and I went the second time after 14 years. I brought Titus with me. Titus didn't get circumcised. I didn't get anything from them. As a matter of fact, they got from me. And after I spent this time with them, they extended the right hand of fellowship, which means they gave me permission. I have, I, I'm speaking to you with their blessing. That's going to be important for the people that are hearing this from, from the Apostle Paul, because in Galatia, they're still trying to figure out who I believe. And Paul's, and I like it because he's speaking with personal experience. Remember I said chapter 1 and 2 are his personal experience with grace. Chapter 3 and 4 will be his doctrinal position. Chapters 5 and 6 will be the application of grace in, in, the, in the life of the believer. So as he's finishing up here with his personal experience, he's making it very, very clear the church in Jerusalem did accept me. They did accept the gospel that I'm preaching. Now, I also want to mention one more thing. Well, let's look at the last verse real quick before we close. They did ask me to do something. Look at verse 10. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. They said, remember the poor. That's what we want you to do. Just remember the poor. Now, it's believed that this, this trip, as part of this trip that Paul went up to Jerusalem, he brought money for the poor. And the poor there that he's talking about are the poor in Jerusalem. The, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that have now come to Christ, are now, they're now poor. So really, what they said to Paul, and, and they said this, fine, Paul, go to the Gentiles, but send money. That's what they said. Send us back some money so we can help support the poor people. So please, no, for, remember the poor, Paul. That's what they said. That's, that's all that, Paul, everything you're doing is good. No complaints, Paul. You're good. Just, just remember the poor. Remember us back here in Jerusalem. Send, send some money when you can. And Paul did. Throughout the book of Acts, you'll see the apostle Paul traveling, or Barnabas traveling back to Jerusalem with, with money or gifts from the churches in, in the various regions to the poor people of Jerusalem. It, it, Paul, Paul fulfilled that obligation. But here's what I kind of want to just, just touch on this real briefly, and we'll, we'll, we'll close kind of with this thought. Um, Paul is adamantly defending this gospel of grace. This entire book is going to be about grace. Why do you think he's so passionate about it? Why do you think that he cares so much about it? Why do you think that it's just Paul, Paul's willing to go stand in the face of the church? And he's, not going to, he's not a guy that's going to back down. He's willing to stand for what, he, what the Lord has showed him. And I want to suggest to you that he's passionate about it because the grace of God has changed his life. Remember who Paul was? 
Remember who he was? He was the guy that was killing Christians. He was the guy that was opposing the churches. He was the guy that said last week, I've, I've passed all my fellow, fellow countrymen in, in keeping the law. I'm rising quickly up this spiritual religious ladder. And then he meets Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and he realizes the grace of God. All the things that he had done wrong, he had to live. He had to live every day with the fact that he sat, stood by and we, we read the story in Acts about Stephen getting martyred. He had to live as he stood by and approved that. The very church that he is now, the very Christ that he is now preaching, he was opposing. All the stuff that he had done wrong, literally murder, if you will. Now God has redeemed him and he's using him for his good work. And Paul says, listen, I know what the grace of God has done in my life and I will not let anybody pollute it. I will not, he cared so much for these people I will not let you be swayed by false doctrine. I will not let it be changed. I will not let you take this lightly. But here's the thing that I want us to remember or I want us to ask. Do we really know the grace of God in our life? Do you really know what it means? I'm going to say this to you. If you're struggling in sin and you really want to stop, you need to learn what the grace of God is. Because the grace of God will be the very thing that motivates you not to do the very thing that you're doing. And here's what I mean by that. When I, when we look and say, Rob, what is the grace of God? What is this thing that you keep referring to, this grace? What does it really mean? It's simply this. Grace, it means undeserved favor, unmerited favor undeserved favor. It's, it's getting something you don't deserve is what it means. You're getting something you don't deserve. So here's how it looks in the life of a human being. We've all, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, fallen short of the glory of God. We've all made mistakes. We've all sinned. Could we, could we all agree that we've sinned at some point in our life? Or if there's anybody perfect, talk to me. I want to know. If you've never sinned, I, I really need to know that because I'd, I'd like, I want to learn from you. But see, I know the Bible's true, so I know you'd be lying. So there you are, I gotcha. <laughs> We've all fallen short, but here's, the, here's what we don't, here's, here's what we need to understand. What are we, what is our sin? When we fall short, when we've sinned, and we all started sinning at a very young age, what does that entitle us to? What's the consequence? What's the penalty for that? Death. Death. Eternal damnation. Lake of fire. Death. So from the moment we commit our first sin, whether it be being selfish as a child to murder like the Apostle Paul, or, or you can, I won't go through a list. You, you, I don't have to tell you what your sins are. You already know what they are. I don't have to list them out for you. But from the moment that point that we've committed the first sin, we are bound for hell. No, no, there's, no, there's no scale that says, well, I did bad, I can do good. There's, there's no proverbial, you know, good-bad scale. That, that's what people want to think. Well, how do, I, how do I get to heaven? I do good works. It doesn't exist. The bottom line and what the scriptures say is if you have sinned, you're, you're on your way to hell, period. With one exception. You can, I can, I have, hopefully you have, received the grace of God. That's getting something that we don't deserve. Now, here's the way that it works. When I realize and I hear the gospel, which I told you what it was, Jesus died for my sins, was buried, and rose again. When I hear that gospel, 
I can do a couple of things with it. I can just hear it and not do anything with it, basically just ignore it. I can say, I don't believe that. Or I can say, you know what, I do believe that Jesus died for my sins. I do recognize that I'm a sinner. I do recognize I need a Savior. I, I, I see my sins. I know what they are. And the truth is, we all know that, when the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. So we know what our sins are. So when I say that, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I immediately come to this place with the Lord of salvation. I can't just say it out loud. I have to believe it in my heart. I have to agree with it in my heart. When I do that, when I realize that I am a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner, and so are you, and we come to that point where I need a Savior, and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, that's where our faith comes in. That's where the faith comes in. We become what Christians title saved. We become saved. We become saved. And that's when we look up and go, wow, how'd you get saved? God's grace. God gave me something that I didn't deserve. God gave me something I didn't deserve. From that point on, once you got saved, you completely quit sinning, right? No, no more sinning after that, right? We all got saved and there was no more. No. No, we still, we, we still fall short because we live in a human flesh, in a body that, that wants to lead us astray. But Paul's saying, listen, don't add to that salvation by saying, I'll be saved if I stop this one sin in my life. If I can just overcome the way that I think. If I can just overcome this one thing. Paul says, no, you're adding to the gospel when you begin putting stipulations on it. Salvation comes from my belief or from the grace of God. He imparts his grace upon me because I believe in what he did for me. From that point forever, I have the grace of God upon my life. I have the grace. Well, what if I sin? It's okay, I have the grace of God. Well, what if, I, what if I'm more bad than I am good? If I truly believed in my heart, I ha- I'm saved. I don't have to worry about that. Now, I believe there's a lot of people who say they believe that don't really believe. I believe there's a lot of people in churches that, that think they're saved and they may not really be saved. But when I believe, when I, when I purpose in my heart, today is the day that I'm going to believe on Jesus Christ. Today is the day that I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. I then place my trust in him and I become saved. Well, Rob, what do I do if I've done that? And I haven't exactly, I, I, I believe that in my heart, but I haven't exactly been living that. I have, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've got, I've got a lot of baggage, so to speak. I've got a lot of things, you know. Yeah, I, I believed, I did that, I, 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 I did, but then I've kind, of, I've kind of slipped away. What do I do? It's simple. You repent. You repent. You get down on your knees, you go before the Lord in a ser- not, not th- just go before the Lord seriously, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. I know that I believe in you. I know that I said I would follow you. I know, but I find myself in doing these things that I shouldn't be doing. Forgive me. And you know what he says? You know what grace says? It's okay. I still love you. Get back up. You're forgiven. God takes those things that we've done wrong, and the Bible tells us they're as far as the east is from the west. The Bible tells us he chooses to remember them no more. From the moment I repent from my sins, the Lord chooses to remember them no more. You still think about them, but he doesn't. You still worry about it. You still think about the things you've done. He doesn't. That's the grace of God. God isn't in in heaven with a legal pad going, okay, Rob, let's see, you taught this on Sunday. It didn't take you long to mess up there and mess up there. And then, you know, no, when the moment the grace of God says, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to look at the sinful part of Rob's life. I'm going to look at what I'm doing in his life. I'm going to look at what he's becoming. When I understand that grace, 
I, I, the Lord can look down and go, I see, I, you know, when I first got saved, it was, I don't know, a long time ago, and I was, I was doing a lot of things I shouldn't, and the Lord looked at me, and he didn't say, he didn't say, well, boy, I got my work cut out for you. He looked at me and said, I see what you're going to become. Someday you're going to be a pastor. Someday you're going to build a radio station. Someday you're, I'm going to use you in Cumberland, Maryland. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know any of it. All I knew was I kept messing up and messing up and messing up and messing up. He said, that's okay, don't worry about that. Just, just repent. I, I'm here, you can repent. But Lord, I've repented six times today already. It's all right. How many more? Seven times 70. Keep going, just keep repenting. Here's where Christians mess up. They get stuck in this place of guilt. They get stuck in this place of guilt where, you know, I've messed up and now I feel guilty and now God can't use me and now I'm stuck and Lord, what am I going to do? And I'm sorry, I've ruined it. And God's going, no, I've got all the grace you need. Just get up. Let's walk with me. Let's go. We can move past this. I can fix all this, but, but you're stuck there feeling sorry for yourself and how guilty you are. The grace of God says, I forgive you. Now let's move together. Let's move forward in this. Think about the lady, the adulteress, the woman that was caught in adultery, brought before Jesus. And all the men caught her in the very act of adultery. They told him, now what are you going to do, teacher? And what did he do? He bent down and he started writing in the sand. Remember in the story? What was he writing? I don't know, but I can guess. And what I think he was writing is I think he wrote the name of the oldest person there. And I think he started writing his sins. And he said, he who was without, the, without sin cast the first stone. And the oldest person there looked and go, ooh, ooh I'm out of here. And the next person looked and goes, oh boy, I'm next. They didn't have to go through very many people before the people said, uh-uh, I don't need my sins written down in the sand. Can you imagine if that happened? If all of a sudden on the screen, Kevin started putting up names and, and your sins or God revealed it or whatever. And then he gets done. He looks at the woman. She's caught in the very act. And what does he say to her? Who's, who's, who's condemning you? Who's, who's, who's condemning you of sin? Where are they all gone? She says, they've all left. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. That's the picture of grace. We go before the Lord and say, Lord, I've messed up. And he goes, I don't condemn you. Just don't do it again. Just don't do it again. Go and sin no more. The more we understand that love, the more we understand that grace, the more we look at our life and go, I don't want any part of that sin. I know how much he loved me. I know how much he cares for me. I, I'm watching him use, use things in my life. I want to be used for him. I don't want to be stuck in this. He can't use me if I'm stuck here. I want to do things over here. We don't quit sin by willpower. We quit sin by understanding that we're free from it because the Bible tells us we're free from it. We understand the grace that we have and our heart says, Lord, I love you too. I want to serve you now. And I can't do it with this thing in my life, in my way. That's the motivation for getting past it. Not just simply saying you shouldn't live like that anymore. That's why when someone comes to Christ, they say to me, what do I do? Just start spending time with Jesus. Just start coming to church, studying your Bible, reading. He'll tell you what your next step is. Because the truth is, if I know each one of you personally well enough, I probably would know all your sins. You want to know mine? Ask my wife. She won't tell you. But who would know my sins better than my, than my wife? Me, but, but her. She would know what they are. And she's got to watch as the Lord has changed me and the Lord has worked in my life. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, and for your grace. Lord, I'm glad that it doesn't run out. Sometimes I think mine's got kind of low. But Lord, I thank you that it's, it's not going to run dry. That you choose not to remember our sins. And Lord, if we're here this morning, and we have been 
slipped away or whatever. Lord, may we accept that grace. May our heart just now repent before you. Not in guilt, Lord, but in joy. Because laying on the other side is forgiveness and grace and freedom from that thing that makes us feel guilty. Lord, it's our heart to be people that you can use, people that will be obedient to you and willing. Our thanks for your word, the study of your word, Paul, his trip to Jerusalem, that grace does, doesn't come with strings attached. And Lord, may you bless us, may you protect us, may you keep us safe. May you make your face shine upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.